Hello and welcome to this episode of the Headstuff Podcast. I am absolutely thrilled about this episode, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, we have we have an interview with Saul Williams, of all people. Uh, Saul might be one of the best people on the planet. So uh, I also have a short conversation with Aaron Fornhoff and Colm Keegan from the Lingo Festival. Uh, Lingo are the are the crew that brought Saul Williams here last year, and that's how I came to. Um, to talk to him at Fighting Words. Um, so there's about a half an hour of that, and it's really interesting as well. It's all about them and how, how the festival came to be and how they how they managed to, to get Saul Williams to come and headline their festival last year and a little bit of what's to be expected from Lingo this year. So I won't keep you here. I'll just let you know there's one other huge piece of news, which I'm also delighted about, and that is that the Headstuff Podcast Network has now got its first sponsor. It's Bunsen, Bunsen Burgers. Um, anyone who has been to a Bunsen knows just how good Bunsen is, and this is the reason why I approached them um, to be a sponsor. And uh, I'm, I'm again, I'm thrilled that they that they're on board. Um, so I'll I'll put our first word from our sponsors in uh, in just before the interview with Saul. So that's that's all you need to know for now. This is episode forty one of the Headstuff Podcast. So, welcome to the Heads of Podcast, Aaron Fornoff and uh, Colin Keegan. How's it going? Hey, Good. How's it going? Of Lingo Festival. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, we're, we're here to introduce the Saul Williams episode of the Heads of Podcast, we're going to call it. But Saul Williams was here last year for Lingo. He was. So, I'm really excited to uh, unleash this interview. Uh, are you excited or... Yeah, it was a bit a pretty nice score, like you know, to get him over it. We couldn't believe he got him in the first place. Yeah, it was like, ridiculous. He was yeah. absolute <laughs> number one target on our list of almost impossible yeah. acts to come over, because the whole idea was to connect what's happening here with America. Right. Oh, right. Um, okay. In some ways, you know, because that's you know that's the birthplace of spoken word, as we see it in some ways, and then uh, to show them how unique and special, and also. How, how how good it is in comparison to what's going on in America right. yeah so and part, okay. of, part of the idea was to lift up Irish talent um, okay. alongside luminaries from around the world and he's okay. sort of the godfather of slam and spoken word although I'm yeah. not sure he likes that as a designation because <laughs> it sounds like you're already you know in the dustbin but uh, <laughs> he's definitely not he's still making amazing art but uh, yeah we were so excited um, that he was willing to come over okay Let's let's just take it back a little bit. So Lingo started in 2014. Uh, let's go back Ish. further than that. <laughs> Didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah 2014 yeah, the was the first year. Yeah. Let's, it started let's, long before that. So you're both poets. You're both performance poets. Is that, is that right? Or is it... Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Colm Colum has a, a strange relationship with being called a poet um, I hate being called anything <laughs> you know what I mean it's just that thing like call him what you like well because you do a lot of different things I suppose a writer fits better does it but you also you teach and yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you were working on a novel is that oh Jesus don't talk to me about that yeah we're, we're okay. Okay. advice to take that off me bio about four years ago because it probably did, like it lived there forever oh, okay, probably okay. See, it probably have more of a life in my bio than out in the real world do you <laughs> know what I mean so like yeah that's gone it's there but uh a few other things have taken priority. Right. I okay. went out, I went out to a nightclub in Clendalkin with Colm and his wife a few years ago and he ran into one of his school friends and I told the school friend that Colm had just published his first book of poetry and he got so mad at me. Oh, really? <laughs> he was no, so he embarrassed. Yes he did. Yes he did. <laughs> 
No, yeah, it's because we live two lives. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. By yeah. day, I'm an ordinary Clondalk person, and by night, I'm like this weird ninja performance poet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not really. Is it, it is the funny relationship, though. I mean, I think everybody can sort of remember the point when they would say, "I'm a writer." Mm. Um, you know, like every little kid was like, "I'm an artist." Yeah. You know, I'm a soccer player. Yeah. Um, but then when you get older, you're like, oh yeah, I um, write some stuff or like I yeah. do some art. But it takes a while and a certain level of personal commitment and confidence, I guess, to say like, oh, I'm a poet. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's probably like slightly harder in a place like Clondalkin, is it? Because it wouldn't be so. There wouldn't be many, as many poets maybe around the place? Or? Yeah, well, there's that thing of, like, there's two types of cultures in Ireland. There's, like, the zeitgeist, which is probably a global zeitgeist, and then there's the the insular or smaller, more localised art scene, which wouldn't make it out to, you know, uh, m- the majority, you mm. know? And mm. when you exist within the majority to say something like, you know, you're a poet, just it might be just like saying, you know, I'm going to be a weirdo. So <laughs> there's that yeah. type of thing as well. But the right. flip side of it is that, the arts can be a bit fucking exclusive, mm, you know, yeah, and can yeah. say to people, you know, we don't want you in here. Yeah. And that's what we would have had to deal with when I was starting off. Like, you know, it's this okay. idea in my own head that people like me should be writing poetry. Right, okay. And then that extends to the whole idea behind Lingo, which was probably revolutionary in the arts world at the time in Ireland, was like that art is for everybody in some ways. Well, yeah, revolutionary yeah. is probably a bit fucking... Probably a bit pretentious. We are so fancy yeah. and important. <laughs> and fuck on this thing. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. But um, Saul says it loads of times in a, in a, yeah. a bunch of kids. <laughs> so. <the> children. <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. Have to learn somewhere. But it was that, that idea that like uh, the arts is for everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's no like, and it's not. Um, and it's, that spoken word is a legitimate art form because it is very much like there are. Uh, I mean, the whole like page versus stage argument is so boring. And kind of creating a dichotomy that's or duality or whatever that's not really there. Mm. But um, there is this sense that this is not a real thing, that right. it's not as high level. It's not as it's, you know, it's not art with a capital A. Where does um, that come from? I, I don't know. I mean, it's it rhymes. It's shouted in a bar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's somebody talking about doing ecstasy at a festival or something. Mm. Um it's more populist, maybe. And people have this understanding mm. of what poetry is supposed to be, which is a lot of reason why people don't like it, that it's this stuff from the leaving yes. cert or it's yeah. like the elbow patches. Or, <laughs> or I mean, I remember see, having, you know, dealing with poetry and being like, I don't understand what the fuck this is talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's me being ignorant. Mm. Like, I don't understand this. I'm not supposed to understand this. And I resent it. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I remember like in school, we were reading some poem and somebody leans over to me and whispers, you, you know, when you have to like write what it's about or yeah, do yeah. a little analysis of it. And somebody leans over to me and whispers like, it's about sex, death or Jesus. Just pick one. Pick sex, <laughs> pick death, pick Jesus. Write it about that. Like you're good to go. And that, it, you know, it was this thing that you it was like this riddle that you had to beat yeah not something that actually spoke to you in any real way and that's what's great about what happens what's happened over the past few years in Ireland not not just in spoken word but probably in the wider arts there's been a reinvigoration of it all lingo is probably um, more to widen it out like this Irish spoken word scene was Mm. a sign that uh, there was a new generation coming through 
who were writing in a different way that had more to do with contemporary uh, global culture than what already existed. So there was a little bit of subversion going on in the pubs and bars and all yeah, at yeah. the time where okay. people were saying, that's poetry, but this is poetry too. Right. And then even there was subversion within the scene where people were saying, yeah, you want to be a ranty fucking shouty uh, American style poet. Well, I'm going to do this, which mm. is more like Heaney or, you know, like, or is more like some, like the lyrical mm. fucking tough sniffing, like Irish <laughs> culture that's yeah. already there, you know, like that yeah. you can't get away from. That's beautiful and amazing. Like, cause we're, we're half in reality and half out of it, the Irish, you know, the old paddies. Yeah. Um, so like Dave Lord said, the Irish don't have a problem with, um, drinking or alcohol or drugs they have a problem with reality sometimes yeah. you know so like but so we have this mad mystic weird quality to us yeah. and that was all filtering into our art as well so but in Ireland what's great about spoken word and what's great about um, you know lingo as well and what we wanted to represent was that it's spoken word in Ireland is different it's unique it's special and it's brilliant you know yeah. and that was just we were just part of what was happening in Ireland at the time so uh, with Lingo was it like did you kind of see a niche or was it something that was just going to happen depending it just mattered who did it or well we were we were all um, poets who had done a bunch of festivals um, whether it's the like standing in a muddy field shouting kind of festivals or more traditional literary festivals that would sometimes have kind of like one token spoken word <laughs> right. event yeah um, but at all, a bunch of different times, like several people had conversations about how, you know, there was enough of a groundswell of enthusiasm mm. and enough talent, most importantly, yeah. to, to support this, uh, a festival just just for spoken word, to really lift that part up. And, uh, and also to have one that was built for artists and created by artists and the kind of, we just wanted to create the festival that we would want to go to mm. um, or perform in. Um, so we all sort of came together as um, poets. So it was Colm and then me and Cal Ryan um, and then Phil Lynch, Stephen James Smith. And then um, we got Linda Devlin, who isn't a poet, but is a genius. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she had actually written a master's thesis on the creation of a spoken word festival in Dublin. Oh, okay. Um, so all of us came together as like it was like if two hydras like had a baby and that baby <laughs> was lingo. Oh, <laughs> a lot, there was a lot. Yeah. There was a wider discussion around what mm -hmm. this festival would be at the start, and there were a lot of poets who were very supportive and helped mm -hmm. at the start. And then we're like, you know what? We don't see like we don't want to be that involved, but we'll help you when we can. So right. there was a great sense of support out there in the wider community because what was happening in Ireland was like there was a live arts entertainment scene, yeah. an independent, non-commercial. Uh, honest and authentic art scene that was happening, you know, and everybody within it were just everyone was fucking so sound. Yeah, do you yeah. know what I mean? And they all helped each other. And we all, they all helped. Even they were like, "Look, I don't want to be there for the long haul. I don't want to be on the board, but I'll help." And then you realize, "Oh shit, that's a lot of work, but I don't want to do that much, but I'll help whatever way I can." So it was really cool, you know. Um, and how the first one, like when you when you look back on it now, is it like this kind of really small thing, or did you start? Do you think? Do you feel like you started at kind of? A high level. We started definitely probably at a higher level than po was possibly healthy <laughs> for us. I mean, we went, it was sort of like a go big or go home thing. Okay. And then also um, there was just a lot of interest and there was uh, a lot of support. And then there was just this, almost this sense of like, oh man, are we going to be able to pull this off? Yeah. It was that yeah. thing of like fucking, like I remember I was standing in Macaulay outside, the Walkmans having a, having a uh, smoke 
and just kind of going it's like it's like that fear when you make a piece of art and you're mm. just like shit man are people gonna like it yeah you know and and or even like when you have your own when you throw a party and you just are we are we likeable enough do yeah. people think yeah. we're are are people gonna turn <laughs> up and then like it's like us? half eight it's like Your we didn't say half eight or <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll we, we, we expect people at night we won't panic until quarter past you know that kind yeah. of party yeah. texting each other at like Three o'clock in the morning, the night before it started, being like, "What if no one comes? Yeah. What if no one comes? What if we have to? Well, I'll just move back to America in disgrace." <laughs> well, we put, we did, totally we did, we did do like everything that we thought we could and had to do to make it attractive and uh, a, a proper quality experience to people. So we, we, like, we were all volunteers. We were all like, I wouldn't say we were amateurs because there was so much experience at the table. Mm. Um, but we were all kind of just trying to do the best we could with what mm. we had. But we didn't ever say. I think sure that fuck it that'll do. It was always oh we can do a bit, you know. We can like, do a be, bit more. And it was, it was just because the group of people that were involved um, were so devoted to it, you know, as an idea. And then the first, the opening night on the first one, um, it was in the main stage at Workman's Club, hmm. and it was like completely packed, like yeah. like absolutely not another person like people sitting on the floor like craning their neck up at the stage and I had this moment where like I actually just went into the stairwell down to the green room and had a little cry for Did a you? second <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I tried not to do that in front of the guys though because yeah. <laughs> um, it makes me seem like an we over emotional American because, but uh, like there was the, um, Aaron bought the t-shirts for Lingo that year and they were all v-necked and I just couldn't that which was is my actually a very sophisticated <laughs> silhouette you know it was, it was very difficult for me to pull that off like, it was just too much of a challenge to my f- fragile masculinity <laughs> the girls uh, always have to wear the unflattering like three chest oh, really? hairs poking out <laughs> <laughs> it's not my responsibility that you're my hairless. lack of chest hair <laughs> but uh, yeah and then like so it, we couldn't have we couldn't have it couldn't have went better and something now there were you know areas where we were like right well that didn't work we're going to try to do something different next year or yeah. whatever like and you're always tweaking and trying to adjust it but, but that'll, the, that'll happen forever yeah and the second year was just like uh, let's do exactly the same let's not take any risks because there was a couple of festivals oh we that totally year. did though no, but that's what I was going to say like, there was a couple of festivals that year that started big and mm. just flopped right. yeah. like the main thing is to not let it go to our heads yeah. let's not go crazy let's right. do exactly the same let's let's improve where we can but let's not go fucking mad and then it was just like but what if we got Saul Williams <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then all of a sudden like, it started to grow and we had to grow it yeah. yeah, it just yeah. became what it became because it's crazy to think that that was the second year of it yeah, yeah. like Saul Williams is like it's like getting Radiohead for a music festival yeah. you know it's yeah, I mean it's we were like we were at, it's sort of the well it sort of became like this thing like can we actually get him because getting the getting acts can sort of become like this challenge like this yeah. fun challenge where it's yeah. sort of like you will be mine yeah yeah and we had gotten in touch with them and then um sometimes like agents and promoters are they sort of like play hard to get or they're oh, organizing yeah. a bunch of stuff or it's almost like testing your love or something <laughs> <laughs> and like is it like the notebook like are you going to build me the house <laughs> and so we'll like i'll show show your commitment and but it just became this thing for us to like, like this is, we've been emailing you back and forth for a while now. Let's just make this happen. So Did you get a bit stalkery? We got real stalkery. Yeah. Um, and so we um, we found out that we've been emailing his like record company and his agent for ages. And finally we decided like, okay, let's 
push this a bit further. And they don't have phone numbers for obvious reasons, like stalkers, <laughs> like us, um, on the website. But we got the address of the record company in Toronto, found out it was one of these co-working spaces with like a bunch of companies like sharing desks <laughs> in the same room. Um, just Googled the address to find other companies in the same suite and then just started cold calling wow. people on the numbers to be like, hey, you know, I'm just looking for Dave's cell phone. Um, do you have it? And finally somebody gave me the cell phone number of <laughs> Saul's agent. This sounds completely insane. And so it just called him up. It's completely like private investigation potentially uh, yeah. illegal and stuff. <laughs> at this point it was just like a challenge and also like dude can you just email me yes or no please and um so i just started calling him like you know every other week for like three months and it got to the point where i could just like we just pick up the phone and be like hi dave it's me <laughs> <laughs> and finally he was like um Finally, it was like, yeah, man, we're in. You know, the thing we like about you guys is like you're persistent. You know, we like your <laughs> persistence. And I was like, we, you know, we were so excited about it. And then um, we actually meet Saul in the uh, the green room of the Button Factory. Yeah. And he was like, oh yeah, I've heard about you guys. Uh. And I was like, so I was like, it went from being like plucky resourcefulness <laughs> to like. Vaguely creepy stalker yeah. behavior. <laughs> so. Paid off in the end. So yeah, paid off in the end. Um, yeah. how, how does it get easier to, to uh, as the name of Lengo gets bigger and, and you've now got like people like, you know, Saul Williams underneath the name, does it get easier to book acts? We definitely name drop when yeah. we ask, oh, of course, um, yeah. ask for people. But I think we're also, our ambition has grown in terms of names as well. So, Great. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, it's still hard. It's hard. I, getting headliners is harder is a harder and more complicated task than I would ever have anticipated. It goes back to that thing like of throwing a party. It's like, are you coming? Well, mm. who's going to be there? Yeah. You know that thing? Yeah, and, yeah. And, like, and it does have an effect like when you say, oh, you know, you're on the same bill as whatever. Yeah. It does change things, I think. But we never wanted to be like this big rock star vibe where it's all about these acts. No. Because you get that thing as well. Um you know, with festivals in Ireland where, like big festivals where the acts are just, you know, the top 100 downloads in Ireland sometimes mightn't be, there mightn't be any Irish artists in the top 100, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, so we, we, we always, that's why the aim was always to connect the two worlds, but not for one to subvert or kind of, you know, overwhelm yeah. the other. So to have like John Cummins yeah. and Mark Rist and Saul Williams on the same bill, Mm. That's what we were at, you know. And then yeah, Holly like McNeish and Holly yes. McNeish and Elaine Feeney as well. Yeah. Saying yeah. these are equivalents. Yes, you know, yeah. Elaine Feeney is our Holly McNeish. And okay. I, and in some ways they're completely different, but that's what we wanted to say that they're on the same like level. There's so much talent here. And mm. this was a um a couple of us were um at the the poetry stage at Glastonbury and it was just this moment where, you know, people are good. Um but you just have this thought like People in Ireland are this good and sometimes better. There just mm. isn't the same kind of infrastructure and support or workshops and festivals and grants and mm. bursaries. And, you know, there isn't as much of that way that this can actually be a living or considered a profession. And yeah. um, But it was just something that sticks with you. Like, it, talent is just as good or or better over here um yeah. so how can we create ways to lift that up a bit more and well, expand we, that to more audiences i think we so. like punch above our weight in literary terms don't we like in terms of population size and yeah. all yeah. our our headline names that we have you know yeah. 
Um, and, and what do you think that is? Like, it, it, do you think it, it's a population, like the infrastructure, or do you think it's the government doesn't support the arts properly here, or like there's a bit of a problem with that at the moment? Yeah, well, I was, I was like, I've had, I, I was uh, writing residence in Dunleary that yeah. was funded by the uh, government. You mm. know, um, I had a couple of arts bursaries funded by the government, so we've been kind of lucky in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, me well, too. but then kind yeah. of also, I'm a broke ass poet, you know, what right? I mean? Like, um, a broke ass writer, but like, um, so I've had a little bit of support, and I, th- it was only when uh, the final. Uh, thing that happened you know since the last election was there just there's no department anymore yeah and it's just been kind of waylaid by mm. by policy and then you realize that we're under underfunded compared to other countries mm. um and it's been you know it's a kind of consistent reduction over the past since austerity kicked in yeah. and it's madly because the encounter counteraction to that the movement that was happening was saying we're going we don't need we're going to do it anyway yeah. Like, you know, we were like, we don't, you know, we're looking for funding. We didn't get the funding the first year. We're going to do it anyway. Yeah. You know, and uh, and like, that's the beautiful thing about all art is that it just happens regardless. Um, and sometimes. It sometimes happens regardless. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. you yeah. don't need that support. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This uh, interview with Saul Williams happened kind of at the end of Lingo Festival in Fighting Words. Uh, yeah. Do you want to kind of introduce what the, what the what the idea was with, with this yeah so Saul came over um to do a headline slot at um the button factory and then we had fighting words as a charity partner so we did a event that column puts together called hero hour where we get people who aren't poets um to talk about poetry for a broadcast on rte arena so we had like David Norris saying some real provocative stuff <laughs> and Mary Coughlin and Mark yeah. Halloran and, um, you know, all different uh, people from different walks of life. Um, and then the ticket sales from that would go to um, to Fighting a charity words. partner and then yeah. Fighting Words was this time. And then, you know, we set up a thing um, which Saul was actually totally into, excited about, mm. um, just where he talks to some of the Fighting Words kids mm. and then some of um, the young people that Colin would work with um, to write their own pieces would be able to, you know, see him and participate. And the the thing that we loved that Saul did um, was that he didn't want to come in and just do a show, like talk poetry at these kids. He wanted to hear their poems. Yeah. Um, so he got them to say their poems and would sort of was so supportive and talk about them and so on. And then the thing I loved as well is aside from his like bomb of wisdom <laughs> it just like amazing and you'll get to hear some of that there um the kids also asked those kind of questions that you like are really desperate to ask a famous person but are too ashamed <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like what like what's nas like yeah <laughs> which famous people have you met <laughs> yeah and you know you like always really want to ask it maybe i just always want to ask those questions but i'm too abashed to, yeah, um, you're supposed to be cool around famous yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, they ain't no thing. So, um, <laughs> but how amazing is it for those kids? They're, like, they're all interested in writing and poetry and they're performing their poems in front of Saul Williams. Yeah. yeah. And you had it's this like, lovely combination of like just, you know, a busload of kids that were just dropped in. They were like, what the fuck is this now? We thought it was doing maths. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then you had people who are like really into poetry who yeah. are like, who are at the woodworks, mm-hmm. uh, which is this 
the the youth workshops that Lingo run. Yeah. And we're going to be doing some of them soon as well. There'll be a new there'll be a shout out for those again. So if okay. anyone's interested, just spread the word. Cool. Um, and uh, so they were there. They're devo- absolutely devoted to this thing. You know, and he's like, you know, the high king of it. You know what <laughs> I mean? Coming in and talking to them and getting and critiquing their poems, you know, yeah, in a really constructive and supportive way. Yeah, yeah, it was it was amazing. I'm really excited for people to hear it. Yeah. But before that, what's going to happen at Lingo 2016? Can you tell us anything or? Um, not much yet, but Shut it's. Up. Um, <laughs> <Is there> anything? <laughs> Don't even ask that question. It's, Erase. Um, Is it going ahead? It's going ahead. <laughs> it's definitely going ahead. There will be some announcements coming up. Um, about some of the headliners and so on. Um, you know, we just closed open submissions on Friday, so that's for the Poetry Slam for um, general performer submissions. And then we have a new work fund every year, which we've just, like, increased the funding on. Um, we got funding from the Arts Council this year, oh, which is great. great for the first time. Um, so that's to... It's sort of a fund to help a poet expand their ambition a bit, to you know, to go from saying poems to doing a, a bigger connected piece or something with music or anything okay. like that. And it's um it's always an exciting premiere to see that happen. And this year as well, we sort of have an informal theme, which is around art for social change and how do you apply art okay. for a, a broader positive shift. So we're going to be looking at that a bit more as well. And it's um 21st through the 23rd of October. Yeah, the, and the new, the new, sorry. Just say the dates there again, because did I talk over there? Twenty first through the twenty third of October, um, and there will be a variety of V-neck T-shirts available for the weekend. <laughs> but the uh, the the great thing about the the new work fund was like that was just unreal to see. You know, uh, Dylan Coburn Gray wrote a spoken word play last year that had four four or five people on stage yeah, all reading city this. song. Yeah, yeah, and it was that like, and that was like so. It, this, the new work fund is saying, what, have you, what what's the thing you want to do but you're afraid to do it? Or, you know, or you want to take, like, what's the biggest risk you want to take? Mm. You know, because the festival is a huge risk. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, all of it is a huge risk. Yeah. Life is a fucking risk. And then, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and then to see Dylan, who's already an amazing, really talented dude, really smart guy, to come to us with this piece and say, you know, I think I want to do, I'm going to try this piece. And then it was just stunning. Like, right. It was unbelievable. Standing ovation. Do you know oh what I mean? Oh my gosh. So, Me and Colin don't I say think we you cried. Crying. I didn't cry. You I cried. Had something in my eye. He welled up. He may have not spilled over, but he definitely <laughs> welled up. I didn't go to sleep till <laughs> seven o'clock the night before. Right. I was just asleep in my eye. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. No, it was a really profound, profound and moving poetic experience. It was brilliant, and it just it hasn't been on again, has it? Since? Uh, no, I don't think yeah. so. He was. I think he was thinking about it, but yeah. I, we'll have to and chase is that, after. And is that like yeah. a real proud moment as well? Like you, you kind of helped enable that. Yeah. So yeah, that like yeah. And then there's that weird proud thing, like where it's like you can enable it, but you can't take any credit for it. And it's like, yeah, yeah you know, I hate that phrase. You know, when someone comes up to you and says, "When you're a kid," and they're like, "I'm so proud of you," I'm like, "You didn't fucking yeah. do any of this, man. I did it all myself." Like, <laughs> I remember once saying to one of my kids, "Well done, brilliant." It's like, you know, that talent is not inherited. Something <laughs> <laughs> like that she said. Like, Amazing. Well, it was cute. What a <laughs> conversation we're having it's like not like some things are inherited but uh, knowledge is, knowledge isn't inherited knowledge oh, is okay. inherited and you know there's only certain qualities that you inherit so, so like Dylan was you're like that mouth is inherited and the, yeah <laughs> and the whole thing was just like um, the whole thing that happened with Lingo was just like spotlight that's what we were spotlight showing around stuff that was already there yeah. you know what I mean and Dylan was a great example of that and we're really excited about the new old fund this time as well we've already got some really interesting submissions and seeing something come to light like that it's an intensely like I was very proud of that moment, but like Dylan was just amazing all by himself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, according to your website, it's 129 days and five hours to mingle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I actually, we have this counter countdown clock on our website, which yeah. I do not like because it just makes me anxious. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is, it, is, it like pressure, is it more pressure now or less pressure that you've done two years, you've a bit of a name? Well, we were talking about this last year because the first year was, like we were saying, like, oh, can we pull this off? And the second year was like, we better pull this off. <laughs> we better fucking pull this off. Yeah. And this year, I don't know, it's... Um, it's that we've kind of made a few, like we... Like we know we will pull it off, but we want to like really pull it off. Right. First so. year it was like, oh my God, can we actually do this? And then it's this, this huge overwhelming sense of like uh, achievement when yeah. it was done. Uh, the second year it was like, oh my God, are we doing this again? Oh, this is so fucking hard. And then it was hard and then it was like, all right, we're still there. Mm. And we, we got it there in the end and it was an amazing experience. And we realized after two years of doing it a certain way, we made some changes mm. and we kind of streamlined things a little bit. Mm. And it's a lot smoother this year and yeah. it's running really well. So Great. it's not going to, I don't think we're, we're aiming for the same scope, but the intensity is really going to be there, you know? Okay. Like we're not going. It's a different scope, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a very different scope. I don't, I'm using the words, I don't even know what scope <laughs> means. But yeah, let's say scope. You should get a poet in here and see. <laughs> yeah. Well, amazing. Uh, lingo is great, and uh, I, I, I'm very proud that it's in Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a brilliant festival. I think you've done a great job. So, uh, so well done to you and the whole team. And thanks for coming on and introducing the Saul Williams podcast. Yeah, enjoy Anything else you want to say? He's a legend. Yeah, enjoy Saul. Yeah. Enjoy Saul. Yeah. Oh, and Saul will be coming uh, to the Sugar Club on the 30th of June um, with his album, oh, so um, music. Martin Luther King. Um, so it would be music, not yeah. a spoken word set. Um, yeah, but I, I imagine there will be some speaking involved in there yeah, somewhere. Yeah, if you want to check out the album before, and it's really worth listening to, because the great thing about him is he's still out there making great art, mm. and he's not necessary. He didn't stay, like, he got hugely popular, yeah. but he didn't chase the phenomenon of the popularity. Do you yeah. know what I mean? He's dead making art. like So he's living in Paris, he's visiting Burundi, he's writing about the mining and all the kind of consequences of that on society in Africa. So really complex, brilliant stuff that he's writing now. So yeah, check out the album. And What's the album him. called? Martyr Loser King. Martyr Loser King, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And he's playing, sorry, just once again, the Sugar Club. Sugar Club on the 30th of June. So get out for that. It's going to be wicked. That was Colm Keegan and Aaron Thornoff of Lingo Festival. Um, so now, just before the conversation with Saul Williams, here's a word from our sponsors. How good are buns and burgers? You know yourself and ask, yeah, what way do you want to be cooked? And it's burger, you know. I don't know how to explain it, but they were really good. It was uh, cooked perfectly as well. Really nice meat was proper, was really fresh, really nicely made, uh, made it to order. The thing is about burgers, like, you know, you can't have it dry like most places. It's like cardboard, like, you know. So this nice and juicy, it's way to cook it. It's good. I like it. I like just the simplicity of just, you know, standard ingredients. And Bunsen, straight up burgers. Really now at three locations in Dublin. Absolute uh, honour for me to be able to sit here and, and talk to uh, Saul. Um, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, he's an amazing man. Um, <laughs> even if he doesn't know himself. Um, but um, maybe we'll start with a, a reading if you'd like to. Sure, sure. Would you like to hear Saul do a reading? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think you might. So we'll start okay. with that. Uh, uh, what shall I do? I'll read something short. Great, perfect. Um, Also, if, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say. If anyone else would like to read afterwards for Saul, um, have a think about that because it's obviously a great opportunity to be able to, to read your 
Um, so we might we might take a few more readings after. Uh, I'll read this. Counterfeit colonel of one-man army seeks heiress of wonderbread for Delhi of dogmas. Farm-raised catfish, a fathomless beginning, seeks mermaid of primordial waters for upstream marathon and depthless stream of consciousness. Armless conductor of styrofoam orchestra seeks brass-sectioned robot for radio broadcast of new symphony written in blood. C-sharp for details. <laughs> Dead organist seeks prenatal plastic surgeon for everybody knows job in purgatorial pursuit of skeletal bones sent down the wrong pipe. Handyman foot doctor with specialty in dog paws seeks Elizabeth Taylor type for long walks in circles and pumice stone skipping in the fountain of youth. <laughs> Young nigga seeks truth. And this one is called, I'm going to read another one. Okay. It's called, uh, <laughs> this one is called Look How They Treat Us. Whispers the innocent sister, her life barely missed her, then patience approached and he kissed her, loves like a transistor. Feelings have features, innocent creatures distort what love teaches. Trade scriptures for preachers, communion for leeches. Earth's mountainous speakers bombard and boom beat us, on guard to defeat us. You hate us, you need us, you are us, you wreak us, the martyrs and seekers. So questions and reap us, more grime than grim reapers. Designer diseases resolve to repeat us. You kill us, you eat us, you grow corn to feed us. You crowd us, you beat us, you crave us, you need us, you slaughter and bleed us, you tax us, harass us, pray and then eat us, you slay us and feed us from POTUS to penis, the aborted fetus, the corpses, the meat us, make sausage of Jesus, the law says to bleed us, we embody greed, lust, the wrong shepherds lead us, look how they treat us. Just a, a quick question there before we invite someone else up about the... Um, the layout on the page, I, I, I've, I've seen you talking about um, how it's important that when you're performing poetry, um, that it, it also works really well on the page. Mm -hmm. um, so I saw in, in the layout there, the first poem is obviously in kind of four stanzas, and there's mm -hmm. a big gap before the last one, and then the second one is in a big chunk. Yeah. Um, so how important is, is, is that, and, and what's the, uh, what are you trying to achieve with the layout? Well, I, I think of, of the blank page itself as, as another performance space. And so there's a great deal of freedom that can be found on a page. Um, I, I had one book, not this one, um, called Said the Shotgun to the Head, where the layout of the book was extremely important to me. Um, and uh, I, in fact, I'd written the entire poem uh, like a ransom note so that every letter of every word was a different font and a different size. <laughs> and, uh, and the publishers were unable to do that, but, <laughs> but they did allow me to keep my layout. And, um, and, and that's part of the power of poetry is, is that, you know, um, the silence can say multitudes, the blank space can say as much as the written word. Um, and, and so how uh, words and ideas are framed on a page uh, can also bring about, you know, uh, some sort of, 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 whether it's some sort of invocation or whether it just, you know, uh, you know sparks the imagination of the reader. Um, I, I remember working on a different poem called uh, Children of the Night, where, and this, I guess, should really be the, the sort of edict you approach any poem with, uh, 
but when I, this was an early poem of mine that I started writing years ago, um, and I spent around a year writing this poem, and I remember thinking that I needed each stanza to be strong enough to be able to stand on a page by itself. And I never actually presented the poem in that way, but it was a challenge that I'd given myself in terms of just like the strength of a stanza, like that's enough. That's enough for a page. There's so much, you know, to be said, you know, or, or to be understood, so many layers that could be found in this stanza that you could imagine all the other words surrounding it. Um, and so it's, it's, it's one of the other performance spaces. I think of myself performing on the page in the same way that I find myself often performing on the stage. Yeah, it's probably a great way to, to think about it as well. Um, I know certain, sometimes people, when they're writing, and they want to start something new. It's there's that thing of the blank page. It's it's really hard to start. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a scary thought. Um, and the same way to other people, the stage is is a scary thought. Um, do you have the that fear for both the blank page and the stage, or neither? And how do you over how do you overcome that if you do have it? Uh, I I try not to operate. If I find a, a recurring fear or any fear in myself, then then that's what I force myself to do. Um, like even in this poem, in this book, uh, I have several poems or stanzas in poems that are challenges that I gave myself because I was afraid to write the idea or what have you. So then I'm like, well, now I have to write it because I'm afraid of it. Um, I, because I can't allow the fear to, to, yeah. to live, you know, and so I have to tackle it as soon as, as soon as I see it, you know, um, in terms of, uh, stage fright or something like that. Um, well, my background is really in theater. Um, I, I grew up, b before I was writing poetry, I was studying the works of, of great writers uh, like Shakespeare and what have you, and often playwrights, but playwrights who often wrote poetry as well, or we were interpreting poems for the stage. And so I spent a lot of time, as many actors do, around a table breaking down, you know, um, literature into beats and trying to figure out what the objective was and, and, and all of these things. And, and so I was studying that long before I started writing. Um, and, and I guess that informed my writing. Simultaneously, I grew up with hip hop. And, and for me, uh, the best hip hop that I, when I was growing up was sort of like a crossword puzzle in that, you know, they'd say something and, and, and we'd be like, oh my God, did you catch that? And, you know, and we'd catch the punchline and the references and rewind it like, oh my God, ah, yeah, ah, you know, and so, uh, and so I, I always enjoyed a, a bit of a challenge you know, um, in, in terms of what I was either reading or listening to. And so when I finally began writing, I tried to execute things on, on that level. And, and what is the actual, um, the, the physical act of getting over that, that fear of the blank page? Is it, would you, would you advise to just kind of write anything, put anything down? Well, I mean, you have to realize, I mean, when I say the stage is a performance piece, there's no exaggeration. I mean, like if you're reading a book and you just, I mean, for example, I used to like joke books. As a kid, you know, I, I used to uh, we used to have this thing in our schools in, in New York called Reading is Fundamental, where this not-for-profit group would come and, and give free books to kids and you could pick them out, you know, and I would always pick the books of tasteless jokes, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and so, and so in, in the table of contents, they would have like jokes for the blind, page 168, and I'd go to page 168 and it would just be a blank page, you know, <laughs> and no braille, no nothing, just, just a blank page. 
And so uh, it was those sort of things where I realized that like, actually you could do anything. And the more formal it is, especially if, you know, if, it's, if, if it's a bound book that you're picking up in a store, if you open up to any random page and just saw one word in the middle of the page, fuck, you'd be like, I want this book. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so th there's a lot of freedom there. Yeah. It's, it's really just about exercising that freedom. Um, you, can, you can start from, from nothing, really. Like, like something as simple as that is powerful on a page, if you break down our language and, and the things we say on, on a regular basis, you know, colloquialisms and, and sayings, there's so many expressions that when you take them out of context and throw them onto a page alone, you find worlds yeah. inside of them. And so, uh, I, once again, uh, I, I don't know how to say, how do you escape a fear, a fear of a blank page? Um, because I, I, I look at a blank page as an invitation. You know, um, for me, once again, I was, for years, I was very particular about the journals I would write in. And I had f people who would present me with gifts of, of, of journals, blank journals. And sometimes I had friends who, who made books and be like, I made a book for you. And if the, if the book was really attractive to me, then I'd have this sort of like arrogant feeling of like, I want to fill this book, <laughs> you know? And so the, the blank page is often an invitation to, to, to play around with, but I don't know. I mean, I've gone through many phases, phases of, uh, I mean, when I first started, I had, uh, when I first started writing rhymes, for example, I had one friend who was a bit older who was more established as a rapper and he would like put a star on every other line and wherever the star is, you know, that's where you need to rhyme. You know, and then I started listening to other rappers and I'd be like, oh, I want to put three rhymes before I get to that line, you know? And so, and so then I started finding a ways to putting rhymes within rhymes and what have you, you know, which is all the things you learn when you study poetry and meter. Uh, then I started taking the stars away and just putting lists, lists of my favorite books, lists of, 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 of the cutest girls, lists of, you know, like just lists, 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 lists. I have poems that are lists where I list names like ropes and gods and Hurst and Akhenaten at Shetsput, Blackfoot, Helen, Lennon, Kahlo, Kali, the Three Marias, Tara, Lilith, Lord, Whitman, Baldwin, Ginsburg, Kaufman, Lumumba, Gandhi, Gibran, Shabazz, Siddhartha, Medusa, Guevara, Gurdjieff, Fran, Wright, Banneker, Tubman, Hamer. And that list came from a list of me trying to think of everything I'd been inspired by that year, uh, uh, artists or, or writers or stories that I had encountered. And I, and I was maybe on a train or on a bus trying to list, all, remember all of the things that had inspired me that year, you know? And so it, there's, there's several tricks that, that one can use in order to, uh, to, to, to find some sort of, uh, you know, creative grace in presenting something. Of course, that list would be different if I just put five names on the list. Yeah. And, and the idea of making an elongated list with, with 90 names came from acting class once again, where I had a, a teacher while we were doing improvisation who was um, very into the idea of like doing, you know, you can say you have a, a B movie or a C movie, a movie that's really not good, but let's make a, a really good C movie, like it's 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 bad, but it's it's the good kind of bad, like <laughs> like a certain type of comedy where it's like a really underhanded, stupid comedy. But that's what you're there for. You want that type of stupid comedy, you know. And and so we started talking about like exaggeration and exaggerating ideas. Um, 
Yeah, so I don't know. There's, there's, and there's tons of artists, like you think of like John Cage or Yoko Ono, who have used blank space in, in, in really creative ways. Um, so I see it more as an invitation. Right. That's, I, I assume that's good advice for anybody. Write it down. <laughs> I, I got a book one time. Um, a friend of mine started a little business where she was taking the, the hardback covers of books and then putting blank pages into them. So there was, it was a nice journal for people. Yeah. Um, and I was given one, and it was some French book. It was called L'Enfant de Riviere. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my basic French, I thought that probably means the boy in the river. So I wrote a short story about a boy in a river. Boom. And it filled the book. And, you know, it's, it's just it's, exactly. it's a, it's a prompt. And it's, it's exactly. Nice, yeah. Exactly. So writing prompts are all around us. Yeah. And so it's really just that I, I, I cannot stress the fact, overstress the fact that so much of my work comes with little challenges that I've given myself. Like, oh, I remember once I have a poem called 1987 that turned into a beautiful poem about the story of Atlantis and the transatlantic middle passage. And, 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 it, and it really like prompted my imagination in an amazing way. But the poem started as me saying 1987. I remember that we used to wear like this is like early like golden age of hip hop days. And, and we used to wear these tennis sneakers, uh, a brand called Diodora. And everybody talks about Adidas and Puma and Nike, and nobody talks about the fact that there was a moment when we would, you know, in the ghetto, dress like tennis stars with headbands <laughs> and, and Diodoras and white, you know, shorts and all that. I was like, somebody needs to write something about Diodoras. Yeah. And so I started writing this poem just wanting to have something that had Diodoras in it. And somehow it turned into this, this other poem. Yeah. You guys want to hear it? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, 1987. Acid wash guests with the leather patches, sporting the white Diodoras with the hoodie that matches. I'm wearing two swatches and a small Gucci pouch. I could have worn the Louis, but I left it in the house now. My niggas do some wing, I go plates with their name, with the skyline on it, with the box link chain. I'm wearing my frame to match I gear with their tent, and you know Lagerfeld is the scent. So right now I'm just listing all the things we, we were wearing in 1987. <laughs> my nigga Raphael just got his Jeep out the shop, mint green sidekick, custom made ragtop. Strictly Business is the album that we play. You're a customer, the pick of the day. Now there's this nigga on the block, never seen him before. Selling incense and oils, a man think that he's the law. But why on earth would this be on their agenda as he slowly approaches the window? Uh, uh, I've seen you before, I've been you in more. I was the one bearing the pitcher of water. I rent the large upper room furnished with tidings of your doom or pleasure. Whichever feathers decree, your Ralph, is he talking to me? No, I'm talking to the sea suns resurrected. I'm the solstice of the day. I bring news from the blues of the Caspian. My man laughs. One of them crazy motherfuckers turn the music back up because I'm the E double weight. But, but I know the volume of the sea and sound waves as I will. Will you allow me to be at your service? My man Ralph is nervous. He believes his strange tongue deceives, and maybe he's been informed that he's pushing gats hidden in the back beneath the floor mats. Count Jack, count Tom, your bullshit a plan. Aslam is something another. Wait, isn't Juanita your mother? I told you, I know you. Now grant me a moment. At the gates of Atlantis, we stand. Ours is the blood that flowed from the palms of his hands on the plow till earth till I'm now. Moon cycles revisited, room food of the sun, full moon of occasion, wave the wolves where they run, and we run towards the light, casting love on the wind, as is the science of the aroma of sleeping women lost in his eyes. They soon reflect my friends are grinning, but I'm a pupil of his sight. The wheels are spinning. You all see your lady tonight. In the beginning, her tears were the long-awaited rains of a parched Somali village. Red-dusted children danced shadows in the newfound mounds of mascara that eclipsed her face. 
reflected in the smog glass of Carlo's East Street bodega. Learning to love, she had forgotten to cry, seldom hearing the distant thunder in her lover's ambivalent sighs. He was not honest. She was not sure. A great-grandmother had sacrificed a family's clarity for gold in the late 1800s. Nonetheless, she had allowed him to mispronounce her name, which had eventually led to her misinterpreting her own dreams and later doubting them. But the night was young. She, the firstborn daughter of water, faced darkness and smiled, took mystery as her lover and raised light as her child, man. That shit was wild. You should have seen how they ran. She woke up in the alley with a gun in her hand, Tupac and Lotus for Menace's blood on his hands. She woke up on a vessel, the land behind her, the sun within her, water beneath her, mushed corn for dinner, or was it breakfast? Her stomach turned as if a compass. She prayed east and lay there breathless. They threw her overboard for dead. She swam silently and fled. Into the blue sea, la so fa mi re do sea, the seventh octave. I don't mean to confuse you. Many of us have been taught to sing, and so we practice scales. Many of us were born singing, and thus were born with scales. Mermaids, cooks, and field hands sang a night song by the forest, and the ocean was the chorus, and Atlantis where they sang. Those thrown overboard had overheard the mysteries of the undertow and understood that down below there would be no more chains. They surrendered breath and name and survived countless rain. I'm the weatherman, the clouds say a storm is coming. Dot, dot, dot. So the poem goes on. But <laughs> you can see how a joke... <laughs> Thank you. You can see how, you know, the first writing prompt I gave myself is I want to write something about Diodorus, these sneakers that, you know, that's, that's where it came from. But I'm paying attention to the stuff that I'm reading. And, and, and the other thing that I'm doing, I'm treating poems like time capsules. So the epiphany of the day, the, the book I came across, I remember one of the things I learned during the course of time that I was writing that poem was that, uh, for example, how do you learn the octave scale here? Do, re, mi? You say it? Do, re, mi, who? Tido? Tido, okay? And, so, and we learn it that way as well. And I spoke to someone who was like, oh, where I'm from, we learn do, re, mi, fa, so, la, si, do. And, and I was like, oh. And I heard the sea within the sea. And I started playing with that. And then I'd seen a movie called Life is Beautiful with Roberto Benigni. And, and I was amazed, and this book is about the, the Jewish, I mean, this uh, film was about the Jewish Holocaust, um, um, but it was also about this, this crazy character who was trying to save his, you know, his wife and his son and didn't want his son to know that they were in you know, a camp and that they were scheduled to be killed, and so he's acting like it's all a joke, and there's this great scene with an anvil, and you find yourself laughing in this horrendous thing, and I was like, ah, oh, I wish there was something that related to the story of the transatlantic Middle Passage to slavery um, that had that sort of lightness to it. Um, and, and so I started playing with the idea of, because we had always learned that, you know, we, we hear of all the enslaved Africans that were brought to the Americas and the Caribbean and in the diaspora, as we call it. But we also learned that there were more people that were thrown overboard, more people that died on the ships than actually made it to those different islands and, and, and continents. And so I started thinking, what if those people didn't die? And I encountered some speaker who was talking about the story of Atlantis existing off of the west coast of Africa. And I connected it like, well, what if Atlantis existed off of the west coast of Africa 500 or 5,000 years before? And they see the traffic overhead and they find a way to send a message to 
the people on the slave ships that make them feign their death so that they're thrown overboard, but they're brought down to the city of Atlantis and are saved and can come back as water. And so the poem became about that. And so that's that moment those thrown overboard had overheard the mysteries of the undertow and understood that down below there would be no more chains. They surrendered breath and name and survived countless as rain. I'm the weatherman, the clouds say storm is coming. A white buffalo was born already running. And on that day, I had heard in the news that the Native Americans were having this impromptu ceremony because a white buffalo had been born in North Dakota. And for them, that white buffalo was a sign of a come of the change, a sign of the changing of the ages. And of course, I'm from America, so we pay attention to the Native Americans and, and all the indigenous folklore and what have you. So I put that in the poem, a white buffalo was born already running. And you know, and so I'm just really just chronicling the moment while challenging myself and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, that's how a poem comes about. <laughs> All from Diodorus. <laughs> All from Diodorus. <laughs> Amazing. When you, were, when you were reciting that poem, um, it, it, uh, it, it kind of struck me that if you gave everybody, and there's like you know, over six billion people in the world, and if you gave everyone the prompt of Diodorus, nobody would have written that. Everybody would have written something different. Is that, is that, one, of the, is that one piece of beauty about writing? Is that one of the things? that it's, it's personal to everybody in the world, and yet, when somebody else reads your stuff or anybody else's stuff, they can feel something as well. Well, yeah, I think there should never be any doubt in, in, in the fact that your filter, like your, like your thumbprint, is original. It's completely you. you, you, you there really is no risk of, of, of you being unoriginal, you know? Like, only you. Can, can have the filter of, of the house and family and world that you were born into. Your experience is your own. Of course, that puts a different fear into poets oftentimes, which is that I always feel, you know, I've heard poets say to me, like, I often feel like, you know, the stuff I'm writing is so personal that nobody else is going to get it. And I'm afraid to share it because it really just feels like, you know, it's just me. It's just my personal experience. And my thought about that has always been the fact that like if you know if, if we have if we have wells in our backyard to get water you know and you have a well in your backyard and I have a well in my backyard you know like we go to separate wells to get our water but the deeper you go the source of that water is the same you know and so when you pull from that individual that private well you're actually pulling from a more communal source than you might imagine and so oftentimes when you do share those personal poems and that do come through your individual filters, you often encounter someone who comes up to you afterwards like, thank you so much. You said exactly what I had experienced, you know, or what I was thinking or what I was feeling or, or what have you. And, and, and you find people who actually connect more strongly to your work, the more individual that, that voice and experience is. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be in any way a similar experience. You can probably no. find something... For example, I suppose one of the more famous ones would be the Diary of Anne Frank. Mm -hmm. You know, not many people nowadays went through what she went through. Right. But a lot of people can relate to certain... Of course. You know, Aspects, feelings, yeah. feelings and ideas, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I don't expect you to necessarily have had the experience that I did growing up, but I have no doubt that you can find some connecting point between my experience and your own. Do, would you like to hear, would anybody like to uh, maybe do a reading? Has anybody brought any, anything with them? I'd love to hear a poem. Um, I don't think I have any. If I can get internet, I can get it only. <laughs> <laughs>
I see someone approach. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Great. Would you like to read Full Islands or? Um, I don't mind. Oh, I like the last one I wrote actually. Can I log into my own email because I have the second draft of that? Uh, and then I'll log in. Yes. <laughs> Just a, on, on on the idea of um, technology. Um, how how do you think technology affects? Uh, I suppose creativity and, and the way we share ideas and, and art nowadays. What are your no, thoughts on that? It's amazing. Um, I'm actually in the middle of, of, of writing a, a story that's very much about the role of, of technology in, in, in the modern world, not only as it relates to writing and, and, and sharing, but just in terms of our, you know, ability to to connect and 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 to interconnect you know with with other worlds and and what have you to break away from the bubbles that we normally live in i i think it's a, i think it's amazing what's what's funny is that just because everything is there it doesn't mean that we necessarily escape whatever our line of interest is yeah. and so finding the proper like promptings that allow us to like venture out further than what we know is still a challenge. But it's great to know that so much is there. Um, of course, it affects me in, in very uh, practical ways as well, where I'm choosing between writing in a journal or writing yeah. in, on my phone or writing uh, on a computer. I, 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 I started out really writing very strongly in my journal. And over the years, the more time I spend, you know, on all these different devices, the more I find words and ideas going into these devices, which can have an effect primarily because my editing process was a part of my transcription process so that I was, you know, when I would transcribe something from the journal to the computer is when I would do my, my second draft yeah. normally. But if it's going straight into the computer, that's a different thing. But on the computer, I can really play with the, uh, with that, the idea of that blank page, you know, and really see how, how something can look on the page. But it depends. I'm, I'm, made, I'm way more fluid here, perhaps, than I am here. Or it's a different type of fluidity. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. For, like, for me, I, I type quicker than I can write with a pen. So I, I type first, and then I print it, and then I write over the, the printout. Yeah. Um, what about like a, a dictaphone or anything? Do you ever say ideas, or do you ever kind of like freestyle when you're on your own or anything like that? Uh, not so much a dic. I, I spend a great deal of time writing, and creating music, and so I use a microphone <laughs> in the studio, and 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 when I'm and and a lot of times I will. Uh, now, I, of course, I, I do make distinctions oftentimes between writing a poem and a song. And oftentimes when I'm working on a song, um, the music will come first. And, and then I'll get ideas for where words should be, but not exactly what those words are. And so I work a lot in gibberish. I, I record a lot in gibberish to, to play with ideas of, of, of where words should be and how they might fit between beats or with melodies and what have you before the actual words come into play. It's just something, um, when you write or when you create poetry, do you write for the page first or for performance first? I write, I write for the, 
not even for the page or for performance. I write for the idea. Okay. You know, like, uh, it's, it's, I, I write to chronicle the idea. Okay. Um, and, and, and then I, I tailor it for the page and trust that the same sort of tailoring that I'm doing for the page is the same thing that makes it make more sense on the stage. An example I can give you would be uh, being in Central Park in New York years ago, and, um, and I think I was there to see Femi Kuti perform, but there was an opening group from, from Egypt that was scheduled to perform and, and they announced, we're sorry, they're running late, they're caught in customs, uh, uh, they were giving us updates, like they're driving from the airport now, they should be here any minute, you know? And so they're coming directly from Egypt. And, um, and so we're waiting in the park and finally, these guys arrive, they get off out of this van and they're wearing these long white robes and there's dust on the robes. And so my first thought is like, well, they haven't been here long enough to get dirty. That's Egyptian dust on the robes. So I'm in New York. I'm like, wow, they have Egyptian dust on their robes, <laughs> you know? And that's my first thought. And then the music starts, and it's completely unexpected because it was like a breakbeat. It sounded like a DJ. And, and, and the way he was going over the beat, I was like, this dude's a rapper. I was like, this is crazy. But it was in, it was in Arabic. I didn't understand anything. But I turned to my friend, and I was like, yo, these guys were throwing basement parties in pyramids. <laughs> and I had a little journal in my pocket, basement, we threw basement parties in pyramids. And I wrote that down, we threw basement parties in pyramids. I left my tag on the wall, the beat, you know, I started, I had an idea, it sparked an idea. Is that for the page or for the stage? It's the idea. They threw basement parties in pyramids. I left my tag on the ball, the beats would echo off the stone and solidify into the form of light bulbs. I'm, I'm just, playing with words and, and using the, the page to remember them, <laughs> you know? Um, whether it was for performance or for the page, like I said, at the end of the day, uh, I do believe that the editing process uh, suits both, suits both perfectly. And I learned that from theater, you know? And that something that's well-crafted for the page is perfectly crafted for the stage. You know, and I don't know if it works the other way around. And so it's, it's page first for me. Um, yeah. mm. But then once I get on stage, that, 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 especially if there's music, there's another energy that, that can overcome. And then there can be some sort of impromptu or improvisational thing that occurs on stage. But that's very different from the writing process. Just about that with the, um, when you're, writing for a song and you say sometimes the beat comes first and then you're, you're speaking in gibberish mm -hmm. uh, or trying to, to find the flow or whatever. Um, I, I actually was talking to, I interviewed B. Dolan, you know, mm -hmm. uh, of course. and he, he said the same thing. He kind of will get a beat and then he'll kind of scat over it until he finds... A lot of artists do. But yeah. do you go into that with at least an idea of what you want to write about and, and, or is a few words or does it literally come to you when you hear the beat? Uh, no, I don't always have, have an idea of what I want to write about. Like... Uh, Sometimes I just have an idea of a strong beginning, like the opening line of something. Like I remember uh, working on a song called List of Demands, for example. And, uh, and I remember like playing guitar and putting the drum and it's just like, I wasn't thinking about anything. I was just listening to the music and the, the opening line, I, I don't know where it came from. Maybe I heard somebody say something, but I was like, I want my money back. <laughs> like, that's a great fucking opening line. I want my money back, you know? And so I gave the song its meaning after it was written. 
when I was writing it, I was just responding to the edge in the music. I was like, it sounds, that sounds edgy enough. I want my money back. I'm down here drowning in your fat. You got me on my knees praying for everything you lack. I ain't afraid of you. I'm just a victim of your fear. You cower in your tower praying that I'll disappear. I got another plan, one that requires me to stand on a stage in the street. Don't need no microphone to beat. And if you hear this song, if you ain't dead, then sing along. Bang and strum to this hair drum till you get where you belong. I got a list of demands. But I wasn't really singing about anything. I was really just responding to the music like, nah, you, you need to stand like this when you sing this song. <laughs> but then I subtitled the song Reparations, and so, so now the song is about reparations, but it wasn't when I was writing it. It was just about the drumming guitar. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'm glad you found it. Um, so, will we we'll hear from Tyke? Yeah. Um, do you want to stand up for no. This poem is called The Sleepers. From the upper deck of the number 67 bus on a Sunday in February, my usual journey home, I saw them, the sleepers. A pair of sleepers palely through the condensated window, a man, a woman, Nassau Street. They huddled together beneath a shiny blue sleeping bag that was sprawled across a rough cardboard sheet, almost embracing. I almost felt their slow breaths whisper a warmness to the concrete urban air and seemed to calm a little the hardness and constant and insomniac feet passing by. A shop front cradled over like a mother watching over the sleepers, guarding the dreams of two chiseled and weather-beaten faces that could not have looked more deserving of sleep. The bus turned sharp around the corner at Trinity, on towards Westmoreland, seconds and Nostal Street is gone. The bus sped southwards, determined. Minutes and the city is gone. An hour and I am home. But there, I saw grey clouds on their commute north towards the city, and I hoped that the rain would be gentle if it insisted on waking the sleepers. So, for me, I always feel like, I mean, I, I should preface this by saying that, that I, I have an affinity towards, towards, towards Ireland. I, I think that there's a, somebody who sold their soul ages ago so that you guys have a very close relationship to poetry. So that even in talking, I'm there. Just like, <laughs> you know. uh, how long ago did you write that? Um, last week. Last week? Yeah. Wow. Last Sunday, but it was about an incident that happened months before. And so, is that part of the process? The, the yeah. The well, no. I when I uh, I had done a sketch on the bus of um, the thing that I saw, and then at the time I wanted to write a poem about it and forgot, and then remembered the <laughs> poem about yeah. it. It was um, I was on the bus and there was. Uh, I write a lot about like the homelessness crisis in Dublin, um, and there was a man and a woman asleep um, in a sleeping bag, and they had their heads cradled beside each other. And at the time, I did a sketch that was kind of like it wasn't like realistic; it was kind of like cubist, because the faces were kind of. I wanted to get across kind of the edginess and addiction 
um, and I wanted to try and get that across in a poem, but get across the kind of gentleness of the sleeping and how that was a break away from the reality. But how, like, it was only for a second that I saw it, um, but there were still other people walking past. And you did it. Yeah. You accomplished it. Do you feel like that? Um, sort of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there was a um, an idea that I was playing with years ago, um, which was buying a, a a photo album and and trying to write smaller poems that were pictures of things that yeah. I'd seen and what have you, and putting those in place of of the of the actual photos, just these lyrical descriptions. And then I encountered uh, Yoko Ono. Who, uh, who, who uh, had this beautiful art exhibit where, in place of paintings, there were descriptions of the paintings that she would read in each place where a painting would go. And, and yeah, your work is beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. So, Ty wrote that last, last week. Um, and earlier you said you wrote a poem that took you a year. Mm -hmm. um, how. how does it is it always like there's loads of drafts or is sometimes do you get a poem that's just finished? I think that's Ty's second draft and it's already brilliant, obviously. Um, what's the the difference between say working on something for a year or just kind of getting one nerdy in one? All right, this is the difference. <laughs> <laughs> this this book was I was commissioned to write. Every other book of poetry I've done is it's been an idea that I've had that I could take my time and present it when I was ready to say this is what I'm thinking of doing or here's a manuscript but here I was commissioned to write something about uh, the fact that I had just moved back to the United States after living abroad for four years and they wanted to know what it felt like to be back and to write about America as I perceived it now and they gave me nine months to write 40,000 words um, which is bizarre for poetry to have a word count yeah. because uh, <laughs> because usually I'm I'm going you know towards less and less yeah. you know um, you couldn't just fill it out with gaps in your layout yeah exactly <laughs> like do the gaps count uh, uh, so um, in fact I didn't even realize in the contract how how many words they were asking for and so when I first handed in the book they were like that's 14,000 words, where's the rest? And so, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, in, in the case of this book, this was, luckily it fell at a time where I was trying to be less precious about work and trying to think of myself more like a factory and like just like, here we go, that's a poem, that's a poem, you know? And so, uh, otherwise, I'm, I like to take my time and a lot of the writing and, and the rewrites, the drafts occur, uh, I mean most of it occurs as I'm writing because I can't, I'm not comfortable with a stanza until it is right. And I usually can't get to the next stanza until this one is perfectly so if you think of it like 
you know, like if you were making a dress or a suit and how you want the so shoulders to fall and, and the lapel and all of these things, like everything must be, you know, perfectly aligned and, and the lining and the stitch and all that stuff. And so, um, and so I go through a series of, of, of drafts and redrafts for each stanza, which is not to say that there aren't sometimes stanzas that come where I'm like, <laughs> you know that's cool yeah. but then you got the next stanza <laughs> you know and so uh, and then in terms of knowing when something is done uh, that usually comes about like I seldom seldom write towards an idea at the beginning like, to, like usually it's just an epiphany surrounding something that happened or something I read or something I experienced or something I saw and then as, as I'm writing, I may decide, uh, this is about this. This will be about this. I want to talk about this. And then I can start shaping it as I go. Um, and then that feeling of knowing, okay, that's it. Um, yeah, it can take a year. I, I have another, another book, a poem that took me four years right. to write. Um, and and it was just, I wrote several things in between and would come back to this poem like it's not done yet. Yeah, it's not done yet. Yeah, yeah it's, I'm I'm the polar opposite in that in that I, I can't finish something well uh, and then move on to the next thing. I write something all the way to the end and it's awful and mm. then I go back and rewrite. Ah. It's like there's an Ernest Hemingway quote. Yeah, it's the first draft of everything is shit, and that's <laughs> yeah. that's, that's for me all the way up to the ten to fifteenth draft. Um, and then there's another quote as well, which is, uh, I think it might be Da Vinci, where he says, um, a, a great art is never finished, it's abandoned. Right. So you have to know where to finish. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's I the other thing. James Joyce spent 20 years writing Ulysses. Yeah. You know, he could have maybe finished a few years earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing is the, uh, I think music provides a great counterbalance for me just because, you know, when you're recording songs, oftentimes it's like that first take. It's hard to get back what you have in that first take, you know? And if you overwork it, it starts to sound overworked, you know? And you want that raw edge, even if, you know, there's a few mistakes or glitches in your voice or in pronunciation, like, oftentimes that's better than going and doing it again with, with different energy. Yeah. Um, so, so I play with those ideas. Um, in terms of in terms of you know first drafts and and what have you, but of course I'm not writing novels, you know um, yet. Um, I'm working on a graphic novel now, and and but the way that I'm working is 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 by vignette by chapter. So, okay. yeah. so uh, yeah, and that's another thing that uh, that's also over career. So if you're if you're in the studio. Um, there's maybe just more passion in the first draft of your song. Yeah. But over a career as well. Um, well, yeah, you, 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 you build your chops and you have a, a clearer idea of what you're doing. There's that great story. I think it's Picasso who's on the streets of, of New York or something. I, I may have heard this story with different artists there. But um, <laughs> let's say it's Picasso. And, uh, and uh, unrecognized on the streets of New York and, and, and sees something across the street and, and stops to draw it. And someone stops behind him, and, 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 uh, and, you know, five minutes passes, and he finishes drawing this thing. And, uh, or ten minutes, and he draws this thing, and the person says, oh, wow, that's awesome. Can I buy that from you? 
He's like, yeah, if you want. He's like, well, what's the price? He's like, oh, it'll cost you about, say, $50,000. <laughs> say, what are you talking about? I, I just saw you do. You did it in 10 minutes. He's like, oh, no. It took me 40 years to be able to do this. Yeah, he's got a quote as well. It took me all my life to learn to draw like a child. It's beautiful. Yeah. 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 Castle's a dude. Do we have anyone else who'd like to read? Uh, yes. uh -huh. Would you like Sean? God. Yeah, okay. Sean, Sean took part in the Lingo Festival last year, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, did your poem do Sean? No, I, 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 I do. Great. I don't know whether I remember it or not. It was like three years ago, and I was in the, like the throes of like really angsty times that I like, wonder quite a love and all that bullshit. So I, I don't know <laughs> if I remember it, but yeah, okay. Um, God, it's after you guys. Um, the first time I saw you, my heart tripped over itself to say hello. Its beat skipped like the broken record of the Beatles' yellow submarine and I sank for you deeply, rocks in my pockets, my jaw dropping open to fill with the fish hooks that you would unknowingly cast out. I fell for the palms of your hand, for the crook of your elbow and for that walk which had surely left acres of heartbreak in its wake. At first we had an instant coffee friendship, an addictive insomnia that was profoundly rich and mature to the taste for months we just talked either on the phone or face to face your words dripping into my ears like honey you let me hang all my worries out on your mouth to dry and i bet that's why your smile is crooked we only ever kissed once underneath the stars when we were drunk the whole night we watched as the balloons of our inhibitions floated up and away just out of our reach your breath smelling like sour cream pringles and jack daniels but the morning after you laughed when we said i must have passed out because i don't remember a thing and there i lay bruised by affections, letting my feelings for you sandcastle in my stomach, and I can't help but wonder, why is it that I can find all these poetic ways to describe how much I love you, but I can never find the courage to say it to your face? Mm. <laughs> yeah, those poems always win. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well thank you. you. That was the first poem we ever wrote. Oh wow. Yeah. Wow. Any anyone else? Yeah. I'll do one if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> what's your name? Yeah, whatever you want. Sorry, what's your name? Uh, my name's Dara, and this is a poem about how I can't write poems. <laughs> It's got some advice. Take a notebook with you everywhere. Who knows when inspiration will strike? Nasty advice. What can I say? Simple enough, right, right, but it's not quite right, and let me tell you why. Because when inspiration strikes, and I mean really strikes, who the fuck is gonna sit down and write? If you can do that, fair enough, I'm psyched, but for anything worth saying, it comes not from a pen, but from 2020 hindsight. It comes from the moments between fight or flight, and it comes from here. It comes from someone near and dear, being scared to death and petrified with fear after those existential fuck-up moments when you were left here. When you realise that life is fucking unfair. When you feel like bursting or ending it all right there and if you can bust out a pen and paper push emotions aside, well, more power, I salute you. You're dead inside. <laughs> more to the point, I want to embrace life for all its beautiful misery, not to capture it, to torture, to suck the life out, to force it to be with me. So if you have another minute, let me tell you my philosophy. 
If you want to write every moment of your life, that's fine by me, but it's only part of a larger reality experience is energy. Let it charge you and fill you with vitality then and only then is that notebook worth shit to you because my friend, you gotta do what you gotta do. You need to look around and be in the moment. Only then can you look back and gently hold it to warmly wrap it up in pages and give it to me in verse and stages that I can believe in and say now, holy shit, that's outrageous. Be with the one you love and really be there. Walk around and look really fucking hard to see what there is to see there. Not because I told you to, but because it's worth a look. And I'm not going to lie, sometimes, yeah, life is going to suck. But that's the stuff that's behind all the best books. Don't be the cage. The traps moments, screaming and kicking inside a page. Be the embrace that sets life free in a crescendo of epiphany. Do all this, but do it not for me. Do it for yourself. And I think you'll agree. It's a ride to be alive. And here's my plea. Just put down the notebook. And come live life with me. Cheers. Yeah, that's definitely the uh, a big challenge that, that I've faced. I used to write in nightclubs. <laughs> yeah, I, in fact, that's how I started, really, was writing. I'd keep a little, you know, journal in my back pocket and be inspired by the music or what have you, and I'd be there, like, having these great ideas because everything was right, the feeling was right. And then there was the other side of, like, you know, it's like wanting to take pictures in a great moment or not wanting to take pictures because it's a great moment, you know? So yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge. I think we have someone else out there. Hazel. This one is about my house being evicted last year. I saw the tired faces of friends, indignant, dissident, determined, lit up bright by the helicopter lights that hovered above us in the night, rudely awakened by the noise of grinding machinery, powered by guardy uniform and private security, encroaching on our vicinity. Intimidation, violence and hostility was their only method of tyranny. They erected fences and chains that separated people temporarily. They thought of us as lesser because of their self-assumed disparity. It was their lack of morality that allowed them to act so horribly. Their choices fueled by apathy. Evicting people from their homes becomes the new reality when 73 for every one homeless person lies empty. This is modern day Ireland. Have we forgotten that only a hundred years ago, Plunkett and Pierce gave their lives so we could be free? Parnell, who stands stone on his pillar built on the foundations of the Land League, would crumble to dust if he knew. Landlords still take homes with these. The dissonance of the past, a history of verse rings true and fuels the dissonance of today. Poets and people's voices, fiery with rage, trying to propagate ideas, acting as a catalyst for change. On this hour of eviction, four riot vans stood on either side of the street, ready to release their batons that could be and their pepper spray that could sting, wanting us to fall to our feet. We stood tall, backs held straight with conviction. This inner city crowd could resist this dereliction. If only the governments and corporations could gain some clarity, their blind eyes would see that you can only find unity when you strive for peaceful community. The guards could never imprison this idea that homes and lives should be free. If there's one thing you take from these words, it's this. People from our past proved it's okay to disobey. It's possible to pave another way. That not our bricks rot and our buildings lie vacant. Our collective spirit cannot fade away. Unlock it without the key. It's time to take it back. Take back your city.
And those are fighting words. <laughs> awesome. It's beautiful. Yeah. Really beautiful. Yeah. For me, that's what I... Uh, that, that's, the, that's the little... The key that I love to turn in poetry. The fact that it can be used to... You know, to rile people up and say, let's fucking do this. Let's burn <laughs> this shit down. You know, like, yeah. yeah. Powerful. Do we have anyone else who'd like to, yeah? I heard this about a friend of mine. And for a while, I went around calling it, fuck you, that person's name. But it didn't go well. <laughs> so, now I don't call it that. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm not big enough. I'm sorry I'm not nice enough. I'm sorry I only laugh at your jokes when I'm high. And I'm sorry that I'm not wise enough. But the one thing I'm not gonna apologize for is not being sane enough because the day I say sorry for my mental health just may be the day that it takes me. The day that a rope hugs my throat tighter than you held my waist. I used to be okay with you taking the oxygen from my lungs with a hug but now I know that my air belongs to me and that even the carbon dioxide I exhale is more precious than your touch. There used to be days where I wanted to send you bags of my blood to your doorstep just to prove I was hurting stuffed blades in my pocket in the hope that they'd spill out onto your floor, the hope that I would spill out onto your floor. But now I know that my blood too belongs to me that I belong to me every day. My skin cells are replacing. I'm losing more of me that ever loved you. Soon there will be no skin left that you've touched. Last night, I downed six shots of vodka just to get you out of my system for the first time. I think it might just have worked. Today is not the last day that I think of you. It's probably not, not the last day I write a poem for you but it is the last day that I breathe for you. Mm -hmm. Well. <laughs> that must have felt good to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. Powerful, yeah. Very powerful. And that's the other key, right? Is the... Uh, is how we can reclaim ourselves through poetry. And, and yeah, those things serve a lot of, for me, a lot of times the poems serve as, as mantras, you know, to, to sort of get me through a feeling or I feel like some of the best work is often, you know, therapeutic or the remnants of, of, of the work that we're doing on ourselves because it's not always about becoming a better writer right, is often more so about becoming a, a better friend, a better listener, and all of these things, and discovering things about yourself, and using the writing to kind of filter through the process of the work that we're doing on ourselves. So, it's awesome. Uh, John, I think you might like to hear John. Uh, John yeah. <laughs> this is a, a love poem to the chipper. You may have seen the chippers around the takeaway shops around Dublin. And I went into the a chipper twice in the one day. <laughs> Very rarely do. <laughs> Lunchtime, night time, pound time. 
Bag of chips, quarter pounder, snack box and a battered burger. Now, now, proper order. Do you want coke with that or water? Form a nice queue and give me a manly, please. Do you want salt and vinegar on these? And just like that, like Tommy Cooper, ladies and gents. Calm customers and these scintillating scents. And that's the lunchtime school rush at the local chip shop. Spontane decision to pop in for a pit stop. Uniform kids blow into these brown paper bags because the contents be shit hot. The boys bustle, show a bit of muscle while the girls gossip sharing this lip gloss. And I pay over the top boss for a few slices of fried spud. I don't know why I do what it's like. I need all this grease in my blood. I'm on the way again, strolling the streets in my hood. It's cold. I pull up and there's warm peace in my hood. And in five minutes I'll be home and while it's fresh I'm going to pen this poem. Make it epic, cool culinary, life is evolutionary. Late night chipper and stiffer the banter, it's busy and edgy, both sides of the counter. The sizzlers I sozzle, suspect suspicious, there's a taste of trouble in the air, not so delicious. And no nice cues, two boys just boogily squabble over the ketchup. This could be mayhem as a drunkard hunter, Colleen is this close to the wretch up. She lost her glamour getting hammered, now she's nailed to the floor. Ah, but soon she is lifted, staggered and twisted, and that's the neon night pub rush at the nearby bistro. Drunk brain decision to pop into this gastro. I'm outside the rowdy's roar on the road, oh my, how we rare. I'm inside of the dissolving of the detention and the detention of the decorum, and I pay my price for the dosage of sausage. I pocket the change using polite language. I'm on the way again, soon to satisfy this hand itch. It's cold, I walk slow, looking forward to a naughty, protty sandwich. <laughs> I could go through my whole life and relate it back to the chipper. Fish on the Friday that God called when I was a nipper. Sent round to the van that got tiptoed into the estate and then legging it back around to the gaff to dish out all that lovely luxury on the plate. Or the Chinese chipper that was just this high up hole in the wall. I devoured the chicken ball and the pound special. <laughs> around its glow we'd hang in a gang half playing the football. We were like meerkats, secret beer cats, wide awake to each approaching footfall. Fucking alcohol as a youth. I must have been that manly flute. Anything but cute in my post-pill, past-pill, pursuit and truth. Looking back now, I scratch head in a nice quiet kitchen with a nice cup of tea and nicely buttered batch bread. But the door to this memory, I'm going to purposely leave on the latch head. For soon I got to go into the other room and sit down and watch the match head. Awesome, footy, post-poem and shit butty. Now that would be truly epic. And wouldn't you know it, look at the poet. The game's on satanic, poetic. <laughs> I, last night we did the poetry reading, and 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 he was one of the people who read before me, and and I didn't, I where I was backstage, I didn't have an opportunity to hear him, and, and so I we met, and I was like, but I didn't get a chance to hear you read, so I'm glad that we were able to uh, <laughs> arrange that. It was beautiful. Wow. Cool culinary might be my favorite word. Amazing. Um, I'll ask you one last question about um, delivery. Uh, so when you deliver a poem, how, you, you obviously have an acting background, um, so I don't know if delivery came easier to you than it does to other people, or um, if it's something that is, uh, does it come with practice? Um, are there people who are just kind of natural at it, and, and what, what are your thoughts on, on delivery? I'm always playing with it, like, uh, like for example, you know, listening to John there, um, for me, hearing your accent 
in your work was very much a part of the work, you know? And, and that type of delivery belongs to the poem itself. And that's what I find, is that there are some poems that, that, that beg to be delivered one way, while other poems ask to be delivered another way. Um, of course, because I came up through the, the poetry, uh, the spoken word and slam scene, but my background, like you said, is theater and delivery initially came easily. Like I was there when the slam scene was just starting and I was coming from acting class or from theater rehearsal and there were other poets who were more literary who would be there, like this is something, you know, more timid and what have you. And, and so I would deliver this declamatory blah, 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 blah. And, and I saw this transition occur where like, oh, I need to memorize my poem, I need to... And, and I instantly kind of regretted that because I felt like uh, the quality of the writing oftentimes was being lost to the idea of performance where I felt like my relationship to performance was separate and other than the, the relationship to writing itself. And so then I started consciously like, I'm gonna read this poem, you know? Um, and so, and, well, I, I, when I first started that, I started kind of like in a theatrical way with a long scroll and I was like, well, I don't have this. And I actually did have that poem memorized, but I was like, I'm reading this, you know? And, 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 and you know, let's not forget that, it, that, you know, at the end of the day, the, uh, it's the word themselves and our voices that carry the message. And, and quite frankly, I could give a fuck about performance, you know, um, but that's coming from someone who has a huge love of theater. Um, but the thing that I learned through that love was how not to perform. What I mean by that was that I learned a bit about the idea of presence, you know, so that it wasn't so much about the use of all of these things, it was about trusting something inside, realizing that you don't have to use anything except that. And so then it became about the idea of, of quite literally holding attention and being aware of that, what it takes and what it is to hold someone or some room's attention. And, and with that, then it was no longer about performance. It was simply about a certain sense of groundedness and connection. And so then it didn't matter. Then it didn't matter. So then, so performance is a great tool. And, and learning the body as an instrument, learning how to breathe from the diaphragm, learning you know, to, how not to depend on a microphone and learning how not to slouch or how to hold one's hands, or sh all those things can be useful. Um, for me, these are all things that come from my theatrical background. And, uh, and I don't really like to hold poets to it because most of my favorite poets I know from pages not necessarily from, from stages, you know? And, uh, and I have no idea how Hafiz or Rumi performed a poem. I've heard a reading of Sylvia Plath. I've, I did get to see uh, Allen Ginsberg read a poem once. He, he, was, he was sitting in a wheelchair, you know? And, and, and I'm sure, you know, he performed Howl. 
and I'm sure he had performed it 10,000 times before that one time, but I was there listening to the words, you know? Um, so at the end of the day, that's, that's really all I'm asking is, is to understand. You know, but sometimes not even that. And I'm aware of myself at the speed that I'm speaking sometimes that I know it's, it goes well beyond the idea of understanding. Then I'm really centered around the idea of, of, of energy in an equation and, and, and how to transmit energy um, beyond the idea of language or language barriers. You know? And I have had the experience of, of reading poems in countries where English is not the first language, for example. And, and, and having to rely on the idea of performance or the musicality in language in order to give the idea of the poem. And, uh, and I trust that as well. Um, but yeah, performance for me was, I, I actually, I love the act of performance. Um, but simultaneously, I, I uh, it's not, how do you phrase that? I don't know. It's, it's basically, it's like, okay, yeah, it, it is particular to my background. It's a big part of me. But when we talk about poetry, I'm thinking about writing first. I'm thinking about writing first. And if we're talking about performance on the page, still I'm thinking about writing. And, 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 uh, and I think that's the most crucial aspect. If you want to commit something to memory, if you want to be able to, yeah, there's, there is a new freedom that you can find by committing something to memory or reciting something. But I've, I've practiced reciting something because it helped me find the next stanza. You know, so even that was just a part of the writing process. And that's how I ended up memorizing poems. It's because I had to repeat it a million times in order to get to the next stanza. And then from the top again to get to the next stanza. And then from the top again to get to the next stanza. And by the time I got to the end, I had been to the top so many times <laughs> that I'd memorized my, you know, the winding path down. And it became like a song or a mantra once again. Um, but I've never really had the emphasis on performance that I have really seen quite heavily in, in the slam world. I personally have never had, had that emphasis on it, but I have spent a great deal of my life studying performance. Okay. Great. Um, do we have a, a minute for an audience question maybe? Or? Real quickly. I'd hate to deny if anyone wanted to ask a question. Uh, is there any questions? Maybe not. Um, yeah, it's a really deep question, but what was it like to see Allen Ginsberg perform like one of the probably arguably one of the greatest stand um, beat poems like ever? Like even though he was obviously quite ill and all at the time. You know it was very early in my um career as a poet. Um yeah, but it was. And and I'll admit something to you which was that when I was first asked to do it, I was like, Allen Ginsberg, Allen Ginsberg. I called my mom and I was like, mom, um, I have been asked to read with a guy named Allen Ginsberg. And she was like, you fool, you don't know who Allen Ginsberg is. I was like, well, it's your fault. You know? um, <laughs> but, uh, and, so, and so then I'm like, ah, yeah, okay. 
because I hadn't grown up, you know, uh, infatuated. I had grown up somewhat infatuated with the beats. But I grew up in America where things are often segregated into the idea of black and white. So I knew the black beats. I knew Leroy Jones, who became a Mary Baraka. I knew the black power poet, poets, you know, I knew all of these. And Alan Ginsberg, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the guy who's with the Mary Baraka, you know? And so I had to kind of decolonize my mind and go, fuck this guy. Yeah, okay. So by the time I was. I arrived there, I was, I was very well versed in uh, <laughs> what I was you know, about to encounter. And, um, and the thing that touched me the most was, was our personal conversation. You know, because uh, what, was, what was striking about the moment, aside from, you know, yes, being able to hear him read his most famous poem and being, you know, literally just like this, yeah. and being able to, to experience that was also the fact that he was there to listen to us read. And afterwards, he, he spoke to us a little bit about our poems, you know? And, and there were just three of us um, other than him who were reading. And, um, and so what I remember is what he said to me, which was, I don't understand all of your references. <laughs> That's the first thing. I don't understand. He kissed me. <laughs> he kissed me and he said, um, I, I don't understand all of your references, but I did hear you chant Om. He's like, are you practicing meditation? Are you chanting Om? He said, yes. He said, uh, oh, cool. You should continue because Om will connect your, your uh, heart chakra with your crown chakra. So chanting Om as much as you can is going to be great for your poetry. Yes, you should keep that up. And, and that's pretty much the extent, aside from just like backstage antics and wine and what have you. You know, it was a, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. Beautiful experience. And, and yeah, he passed maybe about three months after that. So it was it was wonderful to to be able to make that connection. Well, um, thanks so much to to Saul for for sitting. Thank you guys. Thank you. Oh, sorry, we not question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really perform with Nas? Oh yeah, Seriously. definitely. Um, Nas actually Nas. Nas Nas did a remix of one of my songs called Black Stacy. And, um, and, and, um, and the crazy thing about that, I'll tell you a quick story about Nas. That was the first time I met him, which was huge because I had already been a huge fan. Um, I, you know, Nas revolutionized hip hop in terms of storytelling in, and, and the amount of words and how conversational and descriptive you know, the narrative could be in hip-hop. Like, you wouldn't have an Eminem if Nas hadn't had come before and, and kind of expanded the possibility of how you could express yourself, you know, in a song. And, uh, and I felt that immediately. I was in university when Nas came out. and was just like, holy shit, you know? And he was also had this bravado of just like, uh, you know, I remember he was 16 and he said in the song, like, kidnap the president's wife without a plan. <laughs> like this dude. <laughs> you know? uh, but, uh, and so, uh, this is how gracious he is. I, I want him to remix my song. I'm on a small label. 
he's like, so I'm supposed to be able to invite him to my studio, but I don't have a studio. He invites me to his studio session with my producers so that he's paying for the time that it takes for him to record for my song. So we go there, we arrive before he arrives, Swiss Beats is there and all these, you know, cats are there waiting for Nas and they, we pull our music up on the board and finally he comes in and he's like, yo, I love this song, thank you for asking me to be a part of it. He's like, I just need like, you know, a few minutes. So he takes maybe 20 to 40 minutes, right? And we just leave him alone and he's there blasting the music, like putting it on repeat and he's just writing. Then he comes up to me, he's like, okay, so check it out. I wrote three different versions. I have a kind of a spoken word version. I have a more like gully, you know, gangster version. And then I have one that's kind of a fusion of, of the uh, two, which would you like me to do? And so I'm like, uh, give me the gangster version. <laughs> give me the gangster version. And, uh, and so um, he did. It was awesome. About a month or two later, I got a call from him um, and his fiance at the time asking me to read a poem at their wedding. I did. They got divorced. <laughs> um, no, but he became a great friend. I was also with him, hanging out with him the first time he met Kanye. And uh, they recorded a song that day called We Major which is on a late registration, I think. And so I'm in the studio, and, and in the song, Nas says, I asked my man to the right, should I, give, should I talk about this, should I talk about that? And he was talking to me, and GLC is another rapper who's on Kanye's label, asking what should I write about. But for me, Nas was the first time I realized that a lot of like, big rappers in the studio are very much like, what do you guys think of this? How, how did that work? Does that sound cool? Does that sound hard enough? You, like, that's what impressed me about Nas, and then I saw it with Kanye, they'd be like, yeah, these motherfuckers. Da, 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 da. Then they'd come out of the booth and be like, does that sound cool? Does that, you think that sounds hard enough? You think, I'd be like, yeah. That was crazy. The craziest thing with Nas was another show I ended up doing with him um, in Central Park, and I opened for him. He did a free concert in Central Park, and we had a rehearsal the day before, and uh, he had decided that he was gonna perform Illmatic in its entirety. Um, and so all these cats, one, people that were on Illmatic, um, like Q-Tip, people who weren't too, because Buster Rhymes came, Fat Joe came, Mob Deep came, uh, all these people came by the rehearsal studio. Right? But I came in the car with Nas. So I'm like Nas's boy. I don't know if they know who I am or not, you know what I'm saying? But so I'm chilling there with Nas. And to my surprise, but also not surprised, because you know, this is New York, this is around the time that Nas had just kind of defeated Jay-Z in in that epic battle, and he had that that uh great song called Made You Look, which he followed up with another one called Ether, where he like we now say someone got ethered by someone because of the way that he destroyed Jay-Z, even though Jay-Z is obviously not destroyed. Um, <laughs> well, every rapper that walked into the room, this is no exaggeration, I watched Buster Rhymes, all these rappers walk into the room and do this thing where they literally like went down on a knee and kissed his hand. And so... Nas, like, and that was the outward perception of Nas, is like Nas is the god of, you know, whatever. But to see it amongst other rappers, 
blew my mind. And I was just sitting there like, really, dude? He was like, I know, man. It's crazy. <laughs> you know? but, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. People, rappers, all these big, like, crazy rappers in their entourage would walk in and be like, oh, nice, man. Yo, bro. I was like, wow, okay. It's, it's really nice. <laughs> yeah. That was from crazy. Just like working alongside someone like that. Yeah. Literally brings other rappers to their knees. Yeah, literally. Literally. No, it's crazy. But he's cool. I've also met his father and, and, and hung with his family a bit. He's a, he's a really simple, normal guy who, because of the way that he, like, finessed the scene when he was 16, 17, 18, is just adored, you know, and is seen as this person in hip-hop. But it's really because what we had in common is that I know very well, I knew from the first time I heard Nas, I was like, this is someone who loves Rakim. And I loved Rakim. And so as soon as we met, we were just like, Rakim. He's <laughs> like, yo. And so we were, you know, we were just big fans of Rakim. And Rakim had that same, you know, sensibility for kind of the previous generation. So you've been uh, very, very generous with your time. Yep. And uh, I think we could probably keep you here all night, but all we right. have to let you go. Thank you, guys. Uh, so thank you so much. Thank uh, you. So that was the Saul Williams episode of the Headstuff podcast. Um, can you imagine being one of those young poets and being able to to read your work for Saul Williams and have him sit there and li- and react and give feedback? It's uh, it's it's amazing, and uh, I, I was so happy to be a part of it. Um, so thank you so much to to Saul Williams for for coming over and talking talking to us, headlining lingo, uh, taking time to, to go to fighting words and do that. He, he absolutely didn't have to, and he, he wanted to do it. He went out of his way to do it. Um, so it's just amazing. So uh, well done to lingo for bringing him over. And, and thanks so much to Erin and Colm for, for joining me uh, in the first half of this podcast and, and telling me all about lingo and how they got Saul Williams over. Uh, thanks also to Calarine and Linda Devlin and everyone else at, at Lingo Festival. Um, as they said, it's it's on again this year in October and you should keep an eye out for it because it's going to be brilliant again. Thanks also to uh, to Sean Love and Jean and Sarah and everyone at Fighting Words. Um, I'm not sure if you know about Fighting Words, but just look it up, fightingwords.ie. Um, it was started by Sean Love and Roddy Doyle and it's, it's, it's one of the best things in Dublin. And um, I'm super proud to have been a part of it and to continue to be a small part of it uh, whenever I get a chance. Um, if, they, they're always looking for volunteers. So if you're interesting, interested in getting involved, it's all about uh, helping young children to write and, and, and kind of just to come out of their shells and, and do what they want to do. And, uh, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So go to fightingwords.ie and get in touch with them. Our artwork is by Mikey Fleming and the theme tune is by Video Blue. Uh, Video Blue actually has a new single out at the moment called Disco Nap and it's brilliant. You should look it up, just Video Blue Disco Nap. It's a great video made by uh, Headstuff.org's visual editor Claire Byrne um, and Headstuff uh, alumni uh, Jim O'Donoghue-Martin is the is Video Blue basically and it's really, really good. So so have a listen to that and share it if you can. Listen to our other podcasts on the Headstuff Podcast Network um, which I'm sure you know about by now. Uh, we have Juvenalia, uh, I'm fascinated with Grode Farrelly. Our music podcast is called No Encore, hosted by our music editor, Dave Hanratty, and his, his two friends, both great music journalists, Colin and Craig, um, and the Alison Spittle Show. 
You can subscribe to any of those shows on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and I would urge you to do so. Um, every little bit helps. So if you share, if you share any of the podcasts, or uh, just tell someone that you that you like them, um, or that they might like them. And if you want to support in another way, we're also on Patreon. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash headstuff, and you can you can pledge some of your earnings away to us uh, to to help us keep doing what we're doing. Huge thanks to our new sponsors, Bunsen. Um, it's absolutely huge for us to get a sponsor on board, and I I couldn't I we couldn't have dreamt of getting a better one. Uh, we all love Bunsen and. Um, it's just it's just great to have them on board. So so go and get yourself a burger. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Headstuff Podcast. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.